Hey friends, this is Josh Blair. I'm the pastor of Central Valley Church, and this is our podcast. My prayer is that the message you hear today will encourage you, inspire you, and help you walk closer with Jesus this week. And uh, we were looking at an overview of the book, so I didn't really go verse by verse like I kind of like to do. We did an uh, overview of, of the, the Gospel of Mark and an overview of chapter 1, talking about Mark saying Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is our Savior. He's our Redeemer. He's our hope. He's, he is the one that we've all been waiting for. He's the one we've been looking for. And we talked about that last week. And Mark was the, was the he's, it's the shortest of the four Gospels. So there's four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Gospel just means good news. So there are four books about the good news of Jesus showing up. And Mark was the, is the shortest one, and he's the first one, the first uh, Gospel account that we have that was written. He was the earliest written account of Jesus, seeing firsthand what Christ was doing. And he wrote all of these things to us. And he was really concerned about us knowing who Jesus is. And so he starts out the Gospel with this bold statement that Jesus is the Son of God. He is the Savior. He doesn't want to have to leave it up to make you guess who he is. He wants to let you know Jesus is, is the Christ. He is the Redeemer of all mankind. And so he begins to, he just says it right out, that he's the one who's going to set all things right. He's going to be the one who restores all things. He's going to be the one that destroys evil in the end and bring life where there is only death. And so this morning we're going to be jumping into chapter 2. So if you have your Bibles or you have the Version Bible app, you can open that up to Mark chapter 2. And this morning I'm really going to just focus on one story in the whole chapter. I'm going to look at the first story in the chapter starting in uh, verse 1 through, through verse 12. And it's the story of Jesus healing the paralyzed man or Jesus healing the paralytic. And I remember hearing this story from when I was a little kid back in Sunday school where we had felt boards. You guys remember anybody grew up in church long enough where you had the felt boards? It was the green thing and they'd have the little figurines and they'd slap them on there. And then all of a sudden Jesus was walking across the board and talking to so-and-so. Does anybody else remember that? I remember this story on the felt boards. So in this story, something crazy happens. These men rip the roof off this place to get this paralyzed man to Jesus. I remember the little, my little teacher being like, oh, and they open the roof. You know, I remember seeing all that. And so maybe you've heard this story before. Maybe you've had a, an understanding or an illustration of this story. But we're going to dive into it a little deeper and see how Mark conveys who Jesus is and what Jesus can do in our lives through this story. So we're, uh, we're, we're going to jump in right now. But let's pray. Uh, over the word of God as we hear it this morning, that our eyes and ears would be open to what Jesus wants to say to us. Lord, we love you, and we praise you, Jesus. We honor you in this house today, Holy Spirit. We ask that you would come and speak to our hearts, God, that these would be words that are from your mouth to our ears, God, that you would speak to us, Jesus, that, that as I speak, Lord, people would hear your voice, Jesus, your words speaking to their hearts, God, that would pierce our hearts, Lord. God, let us know who you are, and what you're doing in this house today in our lives. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Mark chapter 2, starting in verse 1, and it says this, and, and it says, when it says he, it's talking about Jesus, and when he returned to Capernaum, after some days it was reported that he was at home, and many were gathered together, so there was no room, not even at the door, and he was preaching the word to them. So let's, let's set the scene for us first. Jesus 
uh, is back in his hometown in Capernaum. It says that he's at home. We don't know if he's at his actual, his house, his parents' house. Jesus didn't ever, he never had a house. He just lived with his parents. And then he's like a, he's like a modern day millennial right now. So he didn't really have a house. He was kind of living with his folks. And then he was like, I'm out doing my own thing. And so he didn't really have a house. So we don't know if he's at his parents' house or if he's actually, most theologians believe he's hanging out at Peter's house because Peter had a home. He was married. He had a family. And they believe that he's hanging out at Peter's house. And so, so this is the setting, the scene, that, uh, that we don't really know exactly, but, but a, lot of, uh, a lot of people believe they're at Peter's house, and basically he's having a modern-day community group, right? So that's what we love to do, have our community groups meeting in people's homes. Some of them are so large now that they're meeting at the church, but, but it's, it's a gathering of people who want to hear the Word of God. And so they gather around at Peter's house, and it's so packed that people are standing outside the door trying just to hear what this teacher is teaching them, trying to hear what Jesus is saying. And and it goes on in verse 3, it says, And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let the bed down on which the paralytic lay. Can you imagine Like, just imagine you're sitting in your community group. It's packed out. You're you're going over the Word of God. You're getting deeper into the Word of God. There's a, there's, you know, something's burning inside of you as the Word of God is being spoken. And all of a sudden, you hear this stuff on the roof. And a hole opens up, and this bed comes down. Could you imagine that? I mean, that's pretty unique for me, I think. I think that would be pretty crazy, the roof being torn off a place. And now, the roofs back then weren't like our roofs now, because they would probably take a while to get through this roof. They weren't like firemen who were like, you know, with axes and stuff. It was a thatched roof, so they could, they could get into the roof fairly easily. It would still cause damage to the roof, but they could move it quickly and get down into it. And this is what's happening. And what I find interesting is that this is Peter's house. And Jesus doesn't say anything about Peter's emotions in this moment. But if somebody was at my house and started ripping the roof off, I'd be like, hold on, I'll come outside. Give me one minute, please. But they're ripping the roof off Peter's house. And they're, they're, they're excited to get into the presence of God. They're, they're demanding that they have to get into the presence of God. And it seems like in the story as Mark presents it that Jesus doesn't care that they're destroying the house. He cares about their faith. He doesn't care that they're, they're, they're doing something outside the social norms. It wasn't normal to go to someone's house and rip their roof off. Like this is not a cultural thing like, oh, that's just what they did back then. Like, you know, they didn't do that. It was against cultural norms, but Jesus didn't address the fact that they were doing things that were outside what was considered regular and normal. He saw their faith and said, whatever it would take for you to do that is a demonstration of your faith in me. And he, and he, he applauded their faith. It says that in verse 5. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Son, your sins are forgiven. Now notice, notice whose faith Jesus is talking about here. Is he talking about the faith of the paralyzed man? No, he's talking about the faith of the four men who did what it, whatever it would take to get their friend to Jesus. What does that tell us about our faith in Christ? That our faith is more powerful than you recognize. That your faith is so much more powerful than you know. That if your faith would be such a, a determining factor of, uh, of saying, I know that you need Jesus and I'll do whatever it takes to, to get you to Jesus, that your faith can actually bring salvation to people. 
Your faith can actually turn someone's life around by the way you live and demonstrate your faith. These four men who got up on a roof, who says, we need to get this guy to Jesus, because if we can get him to Jesus, we believe his life will be transformed. And Jesus says, because of your faith, his sins are forgiven. Because of your faith, he will be healed. Do you understand that your faith moves mountains, not only in your life, but in other people's lives? That your faith can affect someone else's destiny. That your faith, what you say you believe and how you demonstrate your faith, can be a mountain mover for other people and their obstacles in life. But sometimes, see, the enemy lies to us and thinks that your faith is just a small little nothing. But Jesus says, if your faith is just the size of a mustard seed, you can say to that mountain, be moved and cast into the sea and it will happen. What is he trying to say here, that we have too little faith, smaller than a mustard seed? No, he's saying, just the little bit of what you believe can do the impossible if you'll believe in me and see it through. Your faith has the power so Jesus recommend, he, he recognizes and he commends their faith. That the fact that their faith brings the benefits to others because of their faith. My first point I want to let you know this morning is that your faith has more power than you know. Your faith has more power than you know. Your bold faith can see your family saved. Your faith can see kids serving Jesus. Your faith can have your parents put their trust in Jesus. Your faith can see your friends turning and giving their lives to Christ. So don't lose hope. Don't lose hope. But instead, let your faith increase and begin to display it. Because faith in secret isn't really faith at all. But faith on display is a demonstration of what God can do. And your belief in what God can do. Jesus is telling that. That we should have that kind of faith. What kind of faith is it? It's a faith that is on display. A faith that is bold. That goes against cultural norms. There's an American theologian named Theodore Jennings who calls this kind of faith. He says it's a holy impatience. Going all out. Going for broke demonstration that you believe that the lame can walk. Do you have that kind of faith? That says, I have a holy impatience. There are friends of mine that are going to hell that are destroying their lives. And I refuse to stand by and see it happen. I refuse to allow them to continue to go through the junk that they're going through. Finding that they're hopeless and broken. When I can stand up and say, my faith is strong enough for you. I believe that my God can do all things. Jesus says, exceedingly, abundantly, above all that I could ever think of or imagine. So if I could imagine you serving Jesus, he can do beyond that. If I can dream that your whole family would know Christ, then he could do more than that. Because he does above our thoughts, above our dreams, above our expectations. So do you have greater expectation for Jesus? Because he wants to exceed your expectations. But maybe our expectations are so small that Jesus says, that's all you think I can do? That's all you think I can do? I can do exceedingly, abundantly, above all that you could ever think of or imagine. So what do you imagine Jesus doing in your life today? What do you imagine Jesus working today? What friends do you think that are so far gone they would never say that they would put their hope in Jesus? 
Would you have enough faith to believe that they could know Christ on their own? That they could surrender their lives and their lives could be transformed forever? Do you have that kind of faith? And what would it look like for that kind of faith to be on display? What would your life have to be like to display that kind of faith for them? What would it look like? How would you demonstrate the fact that you believe their life can be transformed? That you believe that, that even if they are paralyzed in their sin, they can't get up out of it anymore. They're, they're so bound by it. But could you believe that God would reach down into them because you're bringing them to the altar of who Jesus is and saying, I know that God can transform you. I know that God can work in you. I have faith even if you don't have faith. And Jesus says, it's your faith that can bring them to me. Your faith can bring them to me. They might not have any faith in me, but what does your faith say about their lives? Jesus commends the four friends who ripped the roof off to bring their friend to Jesus because they know that if he would just encounter Jesus, his life would be transformed. Mark doesn't tell us anything about the paralytic's faith. We don't hear about the paralyzed man's faith. I'm guessing he was willing to go along with it, but even if he wasn't, he couldn't do anything about it. What is he going to say? Put this bed down. I'm not, I'm not doing this. Sorry, buddy, this is what we're doing, so just relax. He didn't, we don't know what he was doing, what he was thinking. But there had to be some type of anticipation in him because, because of what his friends, the will, what he saw his friends were willing to do for him had to do something in his heart. These friends, these guys care about me so much that they're willing to rip the roof off some guy's house. I'm sure there could have been punishment for that. I'm sure there could have been some lashes for that. I'm sure there could have been some charges pressed against them for ripping up Peter's house. And he says, you're willing to risk it all so that I can meet Jesus? There had to be something stirring in their hearts. And I wonder if you have some friends or family members or coworkers or neighbors who see your faith on display so much that they're saying, you're willing to look foolish for me? You're willing to be ridiculed for me? You're willing to put it all out there just so that you would hope I would come to know Jesus? Why? Why? And you have to recognize maybe just in that moment that their heart would grow softer to Jesus because of the way you demonstrate your faith. This is what we see happening in this story. A faith that says, I'm going all out. I'm going for broke for a demonstration that Jesus can make the lame walk again. That's the kind of faith that we're looking for. That's the kind of faith that we want to have. Have you ever been in a place where it's all or nothing? Well, it's all or nothing. It's, man, it's either Jesus comes through or I'm done. Either Jesus shows up or my life is over. In those places, in those dramatic, hard places, it's where we see Christ work the most. I'm reminded a couple weeks ago when we had Shane Lehman with us, he says in the most uncomfortable places is where God gets the most glory. In the most dangerous places, that's where you see God get the most glory because it's not about you and it's not under your power, under your strength. It's always about his power, his strength. But we need to put ourselves in uncomfortable places so that we can walk with the comforter who is the Holy Spirit. These four friends demonstrated that they were determined to see their friend walk. And even if it meant ripping the roof off someone else's house, they're going to do it. I already said multiple times that we think that it was Peter's house. And for me, I see this irony 
that maybe we overlook, and I, maybe, maybe I'm stretching a little bit, but, but I think it's ironic that when Jesus called Peter, his name wasn't Peter at first, it was, it was Simon. And, and after this encounter that Jesus has, and he's saying, who do you say that I am? And there's this confession, we'll see it later in Mark chapter 8, that, that all of a sudden Peter says, you're the Christ, you're the Savior, you're the Redeemer. And, he, and because of that revelation that came from heaven to, Peter, or to, to Simon, Jesus says, your name will now be Peter, which means rock, because your leadership is going to be the foundational for the move of the church in this world. And I think it's interesting that Jesus says, you who is going to be the foundation for my church also had his roof ripped off his own house. What does that mean? Does that mean possibly that as the church we have to be willing to let things get a little messy sometimes when it comes to encountering the Spirit of God? That we have to allow ourselves to go past cultural norms, allow roofs to be ripped off of what we think is, is conventional and what church should look like so that the Spirit of God could actually move and touch people's hearts and lives? Maybe we would get uncomfortable sometimes that in worship and that, that in an expression of our church services that the Spirit moves and we don't quite understand what it looks like. We don't quite understand what's happening, but we know God is moving. Maybe we need to allow our hearts to have the roofs ripped off of them so that the foundation of what God's doing in his church can grow and expand. Maybe there's some things that we do in church that we try to limit God because we think this is not how it's supposed to look. This is not how we've always done church. This is a different sound I'm not used to. This, I don't really understand this message. I don't, uh, maybe I don't agree with all this. What are all these people coming in? They look different. They sound different. I don't know about this, but maybe Jesus is saying to us that we need to rip the roof off our limitations of him. And say, God, if you want to move and you want to rip the roof off this place so that people can come and counter you, then do it. And let us be a part of it. And let our, let our faith be the things that move the roof so that people can come and counter with you. Isn't it interesting that Peter, who is the foundation, the leadership of the church that Jesus establishes, is also the one who loses his roof. Maybe God is wanting to do something like that in this church. Not literally, figuratively. The limitations are the roof that we put on him. Maybe Jesus is calling us to rip off the limitations so that he can do what he wants to do. Because the Bible tells us that God will use the foolish to confound or confuse the wise. And sometimes we, some things happen in, in church, or sometimes there's things happen in the spirit, or you know, someone speaks in tongues, it's a thing you don't understand, it's a, it sounds different, and you're like, this is, what is happening? This is kind of, I don't understand this, but, but God will use what seems to be foolish to do something that, that the wise can never do. That he can speak to our hearts in a moment when we've been trying to convince for years. That God will, will, will use just a breath to move, move mountains when we've been trying, frustrated for years, to do something that have, has been under our own power and has never been accomplished. And so God uses some things that look foolish. Sometimes in worship we don't understand. People are raising their hands. They're crying. What's happening here? It's the Spirit of God moving these ripping roofs off of people's lives and saying, I can do greater things in your life if you'll let me. If you'll remove these limitations, I want to fill you with the Spirit of God. I want to empower you to do the things that I've called you to do. That's kind of the faith that we want to see. We want a faith that, that moves mountains. We want to see a faith that will rip roofs off so that the lost will be saved, so that the sick will be healed, so that the broken will be made whole. 
Verse 6 says this. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He is blasphemy. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately, remember I told you last week, Mark says immediately 41 times in his scripture, in this gospel. He says, immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? I love that Jesus knows the thoughts of our hearts. We can't pull anything past him. We can lie to other people, but we can't lie to him. He sees when we're being truthful and when we're not. And he loves us so much that he will question us on the things that are in our hearts. Not to punish us, not to beat us down, not to make us feel guilty or walk in shame, but because he loves us, he wants to confront the lie that's in us. And he's willing to do it for us. And I love that he's not afraid to call them out in the middle of a crowd. Say, why did you say this? Hey, hey, why are you thinking this? Let's, let's confront this lie right now because the truth is here to confront your lie. And Jesus says to them in this moment, why do you question in your hearts these things? And now the scribes, they, the scribes and the Pharisees, the scribes of the Pharisees, they're the ones who are considered the keepers of the law or the guardians of the law. So they, should, they knew scripture. They studied it day in, day out. It was their livelihood. It's how they made a living. It was what they did on a continual basis. And they were the ones who were guarding Guarding the law in their minds. And, and a lot of times in Mark's gospel, they kind of get painted in a bad light because they just keep questioning Jesus and they keep making bad choices. But in their hearts, they were really interested genuinely in what God was doing. I believe that they, they, they believed that they were on the right side of history when they were sitting there questioning this new teacher. Wait, hold on. Who, that statement? I don't agree with that statement. Wait a minute. Hold on. I'm the guardian of the law here, so you need, let's back it up and let's, let's figure out what you're trying to say. But I know that they were generally interested because the house was packed out, but where were they? They were in seats close to Jesus. What does that mean? They got there early. They said, Jesus, hey, we got community group, y'all. Hey, we want, we want to be in church. We love church. This is what we do. Let's go hear Jesus. They're sitting there, but in their hearts, they begin to ridicule him because they don't understand what he's doing. They have a heart to learn, but their hearts are far from him because religion has become their God and not Jesus. And sometimes in churches, you know, those who've been following Christ for years all of a sudden think that they're the guardians of the truth in the church. And they'll sit there and begin to judge and begin to say, no, you shouldn't look like that. You shouldn't dress like that. And they, they begin to say, you have to line up with what I believe if you want to know God. And Jesus is saying, no, I can do anything I want to do in somebody's life. I've not made you the judge. I'm the judge. I'll determine what's right and what's wrong. And will, will we be a people who are willing to say, God, I have limitations. I might not know everything that is in your word. But I believe that, God, what you're doing is real and is powerful, and you're going to see people's lives transform. Their religion got in the way. They wanted to hear Jesus because they were sitting with Jesus. They were eager to be taught. They wanted to hear what God was up to. They were wanting to know the Messiah because they kept asking, and they would have other people ask, are you the Christ? Or are, who are you? Where do you come from? But their hearts... We're far from him. They came in with their own limitations and they didn't see Jesus for who he was. They couldn't recognize that when God does something new, he puts it in a new look and a new feel and a new sound. Jesus talks about that later on in this chapter 
when God begins to move, Jesus says, you can't put new wine into old wineskins, which means you can't put a new move of God into your own preconceived ideas of what God should do and what it should look like. He says, because new wine, when you get into old wineskins, new wine expands. And so it would burst the old wineskins. So God is saying, what God is doing now, he is making a new thing happen around it so that it can expand with the, new, the newness of what God is doing. So sometimes we need to make sure that we're not becoming religious over years of following Jesus, that our hearts grow cold to him, and we can't even recognize Jesus when he's right in front of us. As believers, this is a correction for us, this is a conviction for us, that we don't get staunch in how we think church should look, or how it should feel, or what it should sound like. But if Jesus is moving in a new way, in, new, in powerful ways of reaching a new generation, then we have to say, if it's Jesus, it's good and I want it. That's the kind of thing that we see with the scribes. Jesus wanted them to know who he was, so he gave them hints of who he was, but they weren't picking up on it. He wanted the Holy Spirit to break in, but they weren't willing to allow it to happen. They would just say, I've never seen God do this before. This is not how it's supposed to be. But when Jesus sees their hearts and he responds with this question, then he asks them this. Verse 9, which is easier? To say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven? Or to say, rise, take your beds, and walk? Which is easier? To say your sins are forgiven or to get up and walk? Well, the scribes would have known the answer. To forgive someone's sins is much harder than to say to someone, get up and walk. Because there were people in that day, there were, there were magicians and sorcerers that would, that would claim that they could make people walk again. And so, yeah, we've seen that before, but, but you can't forgive sins because, because they knew and they believed that all sins were against God. And only God could grant forgiveness if the offense was against Him. It's kind of like, let's say... Uh, Sebastian puts a huge dent in my car, right? Accidentally, I hope. Or worse, maybe on purpose. Maybe you're mad. And then Joaquin walks up to him and says, bro, don't, for, don't worry about it. You're forgiven. I'd be like, hold up. No, he's not. How can you tell him he's forgiven when he has offended me? He has damaged my property. You can't just step in and say, you're forgiven. And so this is what they're saying. Jesus only God can forgive sin because sin is against God. And Jesus says, that's right. That's why I can forgive sin, because I'm God. And he wants them to know this. This is why he's, he's demonstrating this. He's like, yes, you're right. Only God can forgive sins. And I am the one that has, been, that has come. I am the God that you've been looking for. Only God can grant forgiveness of sin. All sin, no matter how, how small it is or how severe it is, is actually against God. And He alone has the right to say, no, you're paying for your sin. Or, if you've accepted payment through His Son, Jesus, then Jesus can say, no, I have covered your sin. No, I have forgiven your sin. And only God can say, yes, you are forgiven. So the next statement that Jesus makes is a huge defining moment in Mark's gospel because it's Jesus declaring that he's God because, because he says in verse 10, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, 
I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. Jesus is saying here to demonstrate that I have all the power and all the authority to forgive sins. I'm going to heal this person, and he's going to get up and walk away so that you'll know that I am God. But you notice here that he, he uses a phrase for himself. He says, the Son of Man. Mark calls him the Son of God, but Jesus, anytime he talked about himself, he's referring to the Son of Man. Do you notice that? Why does he do that? Again, he's talking to scribes who are supposed to be the guardians of the law. They're supposed to know all the writings of the Old Testament. And he's trying to drop clues to them. He's trying to tell them something about it. He's actually referencing writings from the Old Testament particularly from the prophet Daniel. You guys know Daniel in the lion's den, right? As kids, you think that's all we remember of Daniel. But Daniel was a prophet who God gave massive visions of what was to happen in the end times. And you can read Daniel. You can, there's a lot of teaching on that. But, but Daniel sees these visions of what God is doing in the future, 500, 600 years and beyond from what Daniel's life. And, and there's a writing in Daniel. And even there's other writings that are happening around that time that Jesus is in. There are Jewish, Jewish writers and mystics that are writing things. And they, even in their writings, talk about the coming of this Son of Man. And Daniel re- references it. And Jesus is trying to give them a clue. And Daniel, in a series of visions, he has this vision from God of what's to come. And in Daniel chapter 7, verse 13, if we have that, he says this, And I saw in night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came... One like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and he was presented before him. Daniel's saying, there are, other, there are other writings in Ezekiel and other writings in the Old Testament that talk about the son of man and it's just saying, basically saying, hey, human. But, but Daniel is the first one that says the son of man will come with the clouds, meaning the son of man is going to come from heaven down to earth. And, and Jesus is trying to let them know, I am the one that Daniel wrote about. He says in verse 14, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Jesus is saying, as he calls himself the Son of Man, he's saying, I'm the one who's come with all power, uh, dominion, authority. I'm the one who's setting up this kingdom that will last forever, that will not be destroyed. I am the one that you've been looking for. I am the King. I am the Savior. And this vision is about Jesus, and Jesus is trying to reveal himself to the religious leaders, hoping that they'll catch it, hoping that they'll put their trust in him. Because Jesus wants all to know him and believe in him. This is why the very first message we talked about last week in chapter 1, Jesus' message to us was to repent and believe because the kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe, and he wants all people to repent and all people to believe. Repenting means you turn from your sin, you turn towards Jesus, and you don't go back to it again. If you repent, you don't go back. If you said, I don't want this anymore, I want you, Jesus, and then you're like, sweet, I got Jesus, I'm going to just go back to this. That's not repentance. That's not a change of heart. That's just getting a little bit of Jesus so that you feel good when you do bad things. So that you can turn around and, I, I'm, I went back to it. Would you forgive me? Okay, sweet, I'm going to go back to it now. That's not repentance. Jesus is saying is, repent. Turn to me and believe, take hold, stand in this faith that says, I will follow you, Jesus, no matter what happens in life. I want this kind of Jesus. I want the Jesus who says he'll give me life. He'll give me, he'll give me a, a promise of new future, a new hope. He'll give me a change of heart. I want that Jesus. I don't want this anymore. 
this continues to bog me down and continues to ruin my life. I want a new life in Jesus. And Jesus calls us to repent and believe, and he wants all believers. He wants everybody. He wants all people to know who he is. But sometimes when we come into church, we get comfortable with how things run, and we just get in this mode of coming in and going out, not ready or not expecting to encounter the living God. We, we think that church is just something we do on Sunday, but no, this is a meeting place with God. This is a, a time designated, set aside, that God, I will meet you Sunday at 10 a.m. when I gather with other people who want to meet you too. And he's saying, if you would come in with that kind of expectation, I will touch your heart, I will transform your life. We don't want to be a church that is so cold-hearted to the things of God that we can sit in a service when His Spirit is moving and we feel nothing. That tells us that there's something going on on the inside of us that needs to be transformed. There's something that our hearts have grown cold and hard to His Spirit. Some of us who've been raised in church, we understand what that means. We understand that we can sit and church just becomes a regular routine thing and then we, we just, it's like, well, this is what we do. This is just what we do. We're in and out. I'm, I'm really thinking about in and out after church, you know. Like we're just, we're doing this and it's not so much a thing anymore. And the problem is, the scary thing is our hearts grow callous to, the, to God moving. And, and God can be moving and people can be weeping and we're just like, yeah, I saw that last week. What else is new? Okay, yeah, okay, well, yeah, God does that. Well, good for him, but. And you can get callous. Your heart can grow cold. And if you're ever in that moment, you need to, that's a scary place to be when you don't feel the conviction of God in your life anymore. And you need to ask him, God, if my heart is hard towards you in any way, come and make it soft again. Because I want to be vulnerable to you. I want to be sensitive to you. And if I'm doing something in my life that is causing my heart to be, become callous because of repeated sin that I'm going back into or things and thoughts that I'm having, God, forgive me. Point those out to me so that my heart can be soft towards you again. Because if we're sitting in church and our hearts are hard towards God and we won't allow him to move in us, that is the scariest place to be in. It would be much rather for you to be living a reckless life with hope that you could still have ability to turn back to Jesus than to say, I'm sitting here and I feel nothing and I don't care about it. That is a scary place to be. We want to be a people who are willing to say, Jesus, I'm going to be sensitive to your word and I want you to feel your presence in my life again so that our hearts can be turned to him, so that we can repent and believe. My second point. My first point is that your faith is more powerful than you know. My second point is that continually we need to choose as followers of Jesus to continue to repent and believe every day. There are things that we do every day that are not pleasing to God, and we should ask the Lord, God, is something that I've done to you cause offense or hurt? Father, forgive me. I put my faith in you. Jesus, wash me. I put my faith in you. So Jesus commands to this paralytic man to rise up, to go home. And in verse 12 it says this, And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were, they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw anything like this. We've never seen anything like this. The crowd, when they saw 
that Jesus, what Jesus had done, they were shocked and they began to praise God and they had never experienced God's power in that way. And it happened because of the faith of four men for their friend who was in need. They were willing to put their faith on the line, whatever it would cost them. I mean, could you imagine the humiliation that they would experience if they ripped the roof off Peter's house, dropped the paralytic in there for him to be healed, and it didn't happen? They risked it. They risked looking foolish. They risked property damage for their friend, believing that God would encounter them, believing that Jesus could do something for them. It wasn't a guarantee. We sometimes think, oh, they knew what Jesus... No, they didn't know. Jesus could have been like, whoa, get this dirty mattress out of my face. So they took a risk. They were willing to be humiliated for the sake of their friend to know Jesus. But the beautiful thing about that kind of faith is that Jesus is always willing to step in and meet you where your faith is. He's always willing to say, I see you stepping out, and I'll meet you there. I'll help you walk. I'll help you so that, so that you can have boldness and strength so that people can know me because that's what he wants in our lives. He's ready to meet you if you're willing to step out. He's willing to call you to him if you're willing to step out. Because when your faith is bold, his love and power is even more bold. When your faith is bold, he is bolder. And the call for us this morning is to believe today that anything is possible with Jesus. But as followers of Christ, we need to put our faith to work. Let people see what you believe. And let God get the glory and praise. Our call, our heart, my heart for us this morning is that we'll put our faith on display and watch people grow in amazement and turn towards God. It won't happen unless we put our faith on display. It won't happen if we're willing to take risks for the name of Jesus. But if we will, then he's willing to meet us.